Hi, I'm Melissa Chen. And I'm Angel Eduardo. We're the hosts of the Fair Perspectives podcast, and we're excited to announce our show is moving to a new YouTube channel. Thank you to all of our listeners who have helped make Fair Perspectives the success that it is, with enough content to need its own home. Keep following the show at our new channel, Fair Perspectives, with the link in the description below. Please subscribe there to make sure you don't miss our upcoming episodes. We're thrilled to have you as part of the Fair community. Hi, and welcome to Fair Perspectives, the official podcast of the pro-human movement, brought to you by the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. I'm your host, Melissa Chen, and my co-host, who you will hear from shortly, is Angel Eduardo. Today, we speak with Meg Smaker. Meg is an award-winning filmmaker, most recently having directed The Unredacted, formerly titled Jihad Rehab, her debut feature-length documentary, which premiered at this year's Sundance Film Festival to great reviews before becoming the subject of a cancellation campaign from a small group of activists. In this episode, we discuss how Sundance canceled her film, her background as a firefighter and traveling around Afghanistan, how the 9-11 attacks prompted her to move to Yemen, learn Arabic and study about Islam. We discuss her film, and address the various criticisms levied against it, and the importance of compassion in art and in life. To support Meg and keep updated on when you can see the film, please visit jihadrehab.com. Ladies and gentlemen, I bring you Meg's Maker. Meg Smaker, welcome to Fair Perspectives. Hi. <laughs> Coming to you from the interwebs. Yeah, great to see you with your brand new podcast, Mike. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I think first of all, we should probably give a shout out to Nadia Gill because she's the reason yeah. The reason we know who you are, uh, the reason that Fair and you got connected was Nadia reached out to me and said, hey, I, you know, my friend is going through some stuff. I don't know what to do about it. Do you think maybe Fair could do something about it? And uh, that was, you know, the beginning of this, of our beautiful friendship here. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny to, to, to even more of Nadia's credit. Like, I didn't even know her before all this started. Like, she was probably the only person to reach out during this the peak <gasps> of the kind of attacks and said, hey, I see a lot of my friends tweeting and posting very like things about your film. But before I jump in, I want to see it myself. And I was a very hesitant because I had just been mm. dragged. And then I sent it to her and to her credit, she watched it with an open mind. And then like literally right afterwards tweeted, this film would do way more good than harm. So, um, yeah. and then we just started talking about stuff and found out that we had a lot in common and we're both very like logical and rational thinkers and debaters. And yeah, we just, um, like I was telling her the other day, I was like, if nothing else good comes out of this whole <laughs> ordeal, the fact that we're now friends was silver lining on that. So it was yeah. really good to, to call her my friend now. So yeah, she's a fucking awesome human being. And she's also working on a really cool project now too. So I'm excited to see that yeah. as well. I'm sure we'll get more involved with her as well because uh, Fair in the Arts is a thing we're all doing. But we've alluded to it now and I'm sure that many people watching probably already know but why don't you give us uh, a quick synopsis of what the thing is that we're all here to talk about? I think we're here to talk about my film. Uh, my <laughs> film, <laughs> I hope we're talking about my film. Uh, yeah. My film called The Unredacted, which used to be called Jihad Rehab, premiered at uh, Sundance this last year and uh, was received with rave reviews from film critics almost across the board. And then subsequently, there was a campaign to get the film essentially blacklisted and it was really successful and they did a really good job of that. And, um, mm -hmm. to give you guys another shout out, like no one in the United States would play the film after that happened. Like it got pulled from all these different festivals, like 
South by Southwest and a festival in San Francisco and a few others. And um, it was like, I think I had to fly all the way to New Zealand <laughs> to play the <laughs> film. Like, And then when Nadia hooked us up, you guys did something that was really helpful where you like sponsored a screening in LA and just like invited a bunch of people. And from that screening, a lot of people who saw the film were really moved by it. And then that just started to like spread the word of what this film was and what it wasn't. And then a lot of people after seeing the film and reaching out to friends and talking about it, started talking to other journalists and then, you know, here we are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. On the front, front cover of the New York Times. That, that's amazing. <laughs> so glad that Mike Powell wrote that piece. He's a legend. And then I saw you on uh, Morning Joe as well. So it's getting, it's getting picked up. There's, it's getting. Steam, yeah, no, that right? was, that so. was really, what the thing, the thing that's really funny. Um, uh, I got yelled at by this the other day because I, I've been getting a lot of requests to go on different broadcasts and shows and uh, someone's like, you know, you, you go on Morning Joe. I'm like, I'm not going on Morning Joe unless the actual host doing the interview watched the film. And it was like, they're really busy. They don't ever watch any films or books. So, you know, it's just, it's just go on the show. I'm like, no, because the people who are, a lot of the people attacking the film haven't seen the film. And if I go on that show and have this conversation with you who also haven't seen the film, I think it's a bit hypocritical. And so I was really yeah. glad that he actually watched it. And you can tell that he watched it because he had yeah. a really impactful reaction to it. And so it's just like, I was like, I won't talk to anyone who actually has not seen the film. So Angel, you're, you've seen the film. So we're here. Yeah, we're in luck. Well, so just to get into the a bit more de de details of, of this film, because, you know, I, I actually read about the Bruhaha before seeing the film. And, and then when, when I connected with you and you sent me the link, I watched the film once. Actually, I've, I've seen it now twice, but I watched it once first. And it's it's one of those things where I, I what I saw what I read was nothing like what I saw. This film actually follows the lives of four detainees, specifically Yemeni detainees, who were transferred from Guantanamo to a facility in Saudi Arabia um, that is purported to uh, rehabilitate terrorists. And and it's so powerful because I mean for. Firstly, it, you are no, you know, shill for the um, the war on terror project. Uh, you criticize. It's quite clearly a critique on on our terrible policies at Guantanamo, where we held people without charging them. And by the by midway of the film, I realize I'm rooting for these terrorists who allegedly have made bombs or fought for terror groups such as Al Qaeda and, ta and the Taliban. And it humanized them in a way that was just rooting for them so hard to get back on their feet and, and reintegrate into society. And, and it's just so powerful in that sense. So, you know, you watching this film, I, I really thought um, the most of the critique would actually come from the right because you've managed to humanize, you know, the enemies of the United States. You've managed to humanize yeah. these, these um, terrorists, con uh, allegedly convicted terrorists. Because um, they were never actually convicted, uh, and so it's very interesting to me that the backlash you got, which we should talk about, actually comes from, well, the the left in a way, because th this is the art community, Sundance, and and uh, you know the people that that tend to go to film festivals. So let's let's talk about that controversy. Why do you think what what happened there? Why did this backlash come from that? Part of yeah, I mean, I was spectrum. same camp as you. Like we, we were really, we were into. I, I remember before we would bring on anyone on the team, investors or executive producers. I always sat down with them. I said, before you sign on to this, just know that this is going to be an incredibly con um, controversial film, and it's probably going to get attacked. And I want you to know that before you sign on to the team, because we're going to be all in this together, and it's going to probably be really harsh. And I kind of kind of said it was kind of predicted that it was going to be from the right. And um, I, I'm an ex-boxer. So I was like, yeah, I was looking for their like right cross and I didn't, <laughs> I didn't see the left hook coming. <laughs> so yeah, I think that um, it was, it was a shock because, because we had predicted that the film was going to be very controversial. We did kind of went above and beyond to try to vet it before it premiered. So we did 
around 30 test screenings before Sundance, give or take. And we did it with people from uh, who were um, from the Muslim community, from the Yemeni community, of uh, Trump supporters, um, really conservative people. We had some Guantanamo guards who came and saw the film. And we, old, young, all these different demographics, super liberal, super conservative. And, um, you know, we had these feedback sessions, but never in any of the feedback sessions was the film ever accused of being Islamophobic. And so that's something we weren't expecting. We were expecting some other criticisms that we were prepared for, but not that. And I think that um, it's just been really interesting because as the like controversy started and then moved, it kind of like morphed into different things. Like the controversy or the attack started the day of the announce, the day after the announcement, which is about a month and a half before anyone actually saw the film. So I remember the initial kind of accusations were that the film was propaganda from this, for the Saudis and that it was funded by the Saudis. And then once you see the film, you realize that's not true. And then it was the film's Islamophobic, the filmmaker is racist, it's an all white team. But then you learn that our executive producer is Muslim, co-producer is Muslim, assistant editor was Muslim. We worked with two Islamic scholars and an imam as consultants on the film. And we also worked with like the premier in the world expert on jihad in Saudi Arabia. He was also a a brilliant scholar and he wrote, he literally wrote the book called Jihad in Saudi Arabia. So he was also a consultant (laughs) on the film. So we, we definitely did our due diligence and then the, and then it was like a moving target. And then it was, oh, the men didn't give permission. Um, They were forced to do this. And then it came out that like, no, she talked to over 150 of these guys of that 150 Mm -hmm only 30 were interested in doing the project of that 30, only around 12 were, uh, want to do the project without having their face blurred or, or any kind of like disguise. And for me, it was really imperative to have the audience see these guys eyes. Cause that's how you kind of connect with other humans. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then we also had the top law firm vet the film and look at all the releases and, and basically say like we went above and beyond what you normally do. Uh, to get this film vetted. And then it moved on to, oh, this film puts these guys in danger. Yeah. And, you know, the film premiered in January. It's now October. We should probably get into those those specific criticisms in detail. But first, I wanted to back up a little bit and get into your background because it's fascinating. And it all kind of leads you to making this film. So I don't know where you want to start, but you know, you used to be a firefighter. I think you should. Uh, you should probably prompt this because it's a yeah, long, so, long history. Yeah. We want to keep this. Well, I guess for. let's start at let's start at firefighting because that's what actually takes you overseas eventually. Yeah. So how um, do you even get into that? How does one get into that? How does and, one become a firefighter? <laughs> yeah, uh, how do you how do you get into that? And uh, and what happens afterwards? Guide us through this story. Yeah, I became a firefighter when I was uh, 18, 19, I think, or somewhere in there. And um, I originally started as a seasonal firefighter and then I got hired on full time and I loved it. Like firefighting is a great job. Every day is different. You get to work in a team. It's all about high stakes, fast paced problem solving, which I really, really love and I thrive in. And it was just a really great job. And if you asked me back then... um, what I wanted to do for the rest of my life without hesitation, I would have said, I'm going to be a firefighter till the day I fucking die. <laughs> this is awesome. Wow. Um, and, uh, and then uh, 9-11 happened. And that was a really um, kind of quintessential moment for me in my life trajectory because before 9-11, I would basically describe my firehouse as a place of like love and support and family. And after 9-11, there was a lot of like hatred um, and understandably so, uh, directed at the people and the the region for what had happened in New York. And nothing I saw on mainstream media kind of answered any of the burning questions that was generated by that day. So a little bit around six months after 9-11, I decided to travel to Afghanistan on my own to try to find those answers for myself. And I know like that sounds, I was telling someone the story the other day and they're like, that sounds batshit crazy. <laughs> like, I'm like, I know it does now, but it made perfect sense to me at the time. Yeah. I think my dad, the, he always said there's like only three types of people in the world. Like those, when you hit them, they hit you right back. 
And those when you hit them, they run away. And those when you hit them, they ask, why'd you hit me? And I've always kind of been in that third camp. And so right after 9-11, I started like watching a lot of news programs and reading a lot of books about Islam and trying to teach myself Arabic and read about the history of the Middle East. And it was really interesting because one of the reasons I decided to go to Afghanistan, because what I was reading about Islam and about the history of the Middle East directly contradicted what I was seeing in mainstream media. And then I realized both of those sources of information were someone else's filter. And in order for me to like remove that filter, I needed to go there myself and kind of try to find those mm. answers myself. And so that's, that's what I did. And then after arriving in Afghanistan, I was immediately humbled by my own ignorance of the world. And what I mean by that is, I don't know if you remember what you were like when you were 20, 21, but I had a very assured oh. view of the world. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, I do. Um, and it was really humbling because all those things that I had been kind of taught and internalized through watching the media and being exposed to certain kind of stories were completely kind of contradicted by my experience in the country. And then after that, it kind of sent me on this journey to better educate myself. And I realized the best way to do that was to go to places and talk to people and try to see the world the way they did. So I, um, after that, I, I moved to Yemen um, to study Arabic and Islam. And I got a job as a firefighting instructor in Yemen, which was interesting, uh, teaching Yemeni men how to fight fire while I um, studied Arabic. Hmm. That's a cliff note version. Yeah. <laughs> well, then what, what, where's the jump? How, does, how do you connect from that point to suddenly you're a filmmaker, firefighter to filmmaker? Yeah, I, my, it was mostly because of my, it was my time in Yemen, living in a country and living in a community there and being and having people that I consider family there and, and to this day and friends and seeing, having that experience and then seeing how the country was portrayed in the media and not seeing any of the stories that I was experiencing or hearing at all in, in the media. And so I kind of pushed me to try to fill that void and, and find stories that weren't being talked about that showed things that I think would kind of challenge people's stereotypes about um, not only the region, but the people and, and, and try to, cause I knew most people wouldn't go and go to Afghanistan or travel and, and live in Yemen. So I felt very lucky to be able to do that. And so I, that's kind of where I started to change and, and my career is like, maybe I want to be a storyteller, filmmaker, journalist, and, uh, yeah. And then I went back to the States and finished my degree and then went to Stanford and got a MFA in documentary filmmaking. And here we are with huge student loans. <laughs> Meg, Yay. so when it, was it your time in Yemen that allowed you to develop the contacts that actually led to the making of this film? Because from what I understand, what you were able to do, which is to gain access to this facility in Saudi Arabia... And to be able to convince, actually, um, what if it, in the end it was four or five men to come on camera and 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 kind of reveal their soul, is is really um, it's kind of a feat. Like nobody else has been able to do something like that. How what what made you so different? Well, I think my time. Well, I think it was a couple of things. So my time in Yemen was really helpful because uh, I lived in a, in a basically a authoritarian re regime for a half decade and you learn how these kind of uh, dictatorships operate and you learn how to navigate it in the way that like you need to in order to get stuff done. So for example, in Saudi Arabia, most journalists go to the Ministry of Information to get their visa. Having lived in Yemen for so long and know and known that all ministries are not created equal, um, I knew that the ministry that I really needed to get permission from was the Ministry of Interior, which is like their version of the like Homeland Security, FBI, and CIA all rolled into one. And if I and everyone was like, that's the most powerful ministry, and everyone was um, some people were really scared of that that ministry as well. So as if I had their approval to be there, then that would make it a lot easier to bring in equipment to film and, and things like that. And so that was like one step I did, but that took about a year. I mean, it took me a year of back channeling and building relationships and talking to people. And the one thing that you have to understand about places like Saudi Arabia is um, they never tell you no. 
they just throw hurdle after hurdle after hurdle after hurdle after hurdle in front of you until you eventually give up. And I remember like one time they sent us an email being like, we, we asked all the people at El Hayer, which is the prison you see in the film. We asked all the people at El Hayer and at the rehab center if they wanted to participate in your film and they said no. So I'm sorry. And so that was supposed to be the end of it. I said, well, you know, is, is there any way that I can go there and talk to them myself? And there was like kind of a back and forth. And I had spoke to some people that I had befriended in the mystery interior. And finally, um, they acquiesced and said, you know, we'll allow you to have physical access to the center and the prison with one big caveat. And this is the hurdle where you're not allowed to film one frame of your, you know, project unless these men agree to film with you from the jump. Meaning like I couldn't spend weeks there trying to gain their trust. It, it had to be like the first meeting we we're there, they have to agree to this because they knew that there was just no way that was going to happen. And then they could say, well, we opened our doors to you, but these men didn't want to participate. And so, and they were right. Like the first time, uh, the first group of people I met were, was a group of older Al-Qaeda guys. And I sat down, I started speaking to them um, in Arabic and uh, no one would even acknowledge my presence or, or look me in the eye. And then I went to a group of younger ISIS guys. Same thing happened. But then something very serendipitous happened during that time where Saudi Arabia took their first batch of non-Saudi nationals to the program. And that batch has happened to be from Yemen. And because I learned Arabic in Yemen, I had, I had a very Yemeni accent. And what I, in the Middle East, um, Yemen is a very distinct dialect. So the way it's also, it's like very old school, like, like Shakespearean English, but very Bedouin, very country. So it's like, it's like speaking Shakespearean English with an Alabama accent. Like it's very distinct. <laughs> and so it's not normal for a foreigner to speak with that dialect. Normally people, um, learn uh, Arabic in the Levant, in Syria, or or also in Egypt. Um, so when I started speaking, their heads popped up and they're like, why do you speak our mother tongue? And I told them I used to live in Yemen. They wanted to know where. I told them in the old city near the Sila. And then we just started talking about things and we talked for a few hours. And then after that, I asked them if anyone wanted to speak to me one-on-one -on -one, and I wanted to hear like more about their individual stories and a couple hands raised. And then word spread around the rehab center and, and through the people there that uh, she wasn't like a normal journalist. She was like a white Yemeni. <laughs> so that was what I heard. So um, after that, I was able to speak to a lot of guys, um, both at the rehab center and at the Al Hayer prison. And I, all, all in all, I talked to about 150 of them. Um, some of the, our talks lasted 10 minutes. Some of the talks lasted 10 hours, like Khalid's interview. The guy who opens the film, the guy who um, was a bomb maker and bomb instructor of Al-Qaeda, his interview was 10 hours long because he was just such a fascinating character. And he had so much that he wanted to talk about in terms of his time in Afghanistan and his thoughts about America and his time in Guantanamo. So, yeah, it was um, I think it was a combination of having a very unique background and experience and, in the region, as well as, you know, being pretty lucky that they were Yemenis that came in there. And on top of that, I think it was just like, you got, I mean, I'm not a great speller. I'm horrible with directions, but I got tenacity for days. So it was worked <laughs> to my favor. It certainly did. Now, one thing that I remember from watching the film, and I've seen it a couple of times as well, is we don't actually hear you very much at all. You know, I think a little bit in the beginning, because we're getting things set up, but I don't hear much of your voice and I don't see you at all in the movie, if I remember right. So, yeah, you don't. There's one shot where I accidentally appear when Muhammad has, because I gave uh, them a camera to film themselves in the pool when there's like a pool scene. And he's obviously they've been in Guantanamo for a while. And so digital cameras weren't a thing in back then. And so he, mm -hmm. I gave him the camera and he had it the wrong way around. So he's accidentally filming himself and me in the background. And then I, and he's like, it's not working. So I'm like, turn around, turn around. He's like, oh, <laughs> there it is. Right. <laughs> so yeah, that so, brief accidental so, shot, yeah. There, so there's no real substantive presence from you. And, and you're not, you know, you don't narrate the film. No. Um, who would want to hear and, my voice for an hour and 45 minutes? God, no. Well, hopefully people who are watching or listening to this podcast. Yeah. But <laughs> Sorry. Apart from, apart from that. <laughs> uh, 
But, you know, the thing is, one of the criticisms that I've heard of the film is, you know, this thing of someone like Meg, for various reasons, should not be the person telling this story. And what's strange to me is that you don't, you're not really telling anyone anything. You're letting these men tell their own story. Now, of course, you, you are, you know, you are filming it. You are the director of this documentary. Yeah. So you are controlling it in a way. Mm-hmm. But I never got the impression, as I do with many documentaries, yeah. that the director is trying to manipulate me into seeing something a certain way. I didn't get that impression from this one. I honestly didn't because it, I really just felt like I was hearing these four guys and then eventually three guys just talk and talk about their experience. And they felt, it seemed as though they were speaking freely. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it was, that was, that was on purpose because I feel like my experience with these men were that was that their stories were so compelling and they were such compelling people that any kind of interference from me would kind of distract from that. and also. I'm, I'm, I'm wired in a way when someone's trying to tell me what to think, like, like a lot of mm-hmm. documentaries, especially issue-based documentaries are like, this is what you need to do. This is the cause you need to get behind. Go to www.savethebabies.com and, and click donate. Right. So this was not mm-hmm. that film. It was more of. Okay. Not that you don't love babies. I do. <laughs> I don't want to get canceled again for not being a baby lover. <laughs> okay. Babies are great. So yeah, I think that like for me, uh, I like it when I'm give, presented a story or a piece of information and allowed to make up my own mind. Because I do think that the audiences, both in the States and other places that see it, are intelligent enough to watch this and kind of get out of it what they will. And what I like about the film is it's so open-ended that people have gotten a lot of different things out of it. So for example, people in the vet community have surprisingly really responded positively to the film and some people have emailed me saying it's been very healing for them to watch this film and re- and they relate to these men as like former people who they were fighting, but also shared a, a really interesting, similar experience of ha- being in the war in Afghanistan and going through similar things. I had people surprisingly reach out from the undocumented community and really relate to these men in the lat- latter half of the film of being in a, sta- a stateless state, right? Being in a, in a country that they're not from and they're not able to work and they don't have the proper paperwork to, to do that. And then we had, you know, people reach out to us from the Midwest who were like, I had no idea like the people in Guantanamo were like this. And I just thought these were all like the worst of the worst. And they all were, you know, these psychopaths. But I saw your film and they seem like, so one person said like, it reminded me of my cousin and he like really reminded me of him. And so that was, I think that's one of the strengths of the film is it kind of lets the audience just explore these stories on their own kind of volition and take from it what they will. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about the film is because it means different things to different people. Um, and I, and I, and I find that a lot of the times when you try to tell a story in a way where you're trying to tell people what to think, the only people who actually watched that film are the people where I drank the Kool-Aid, which right. for me, I'm not really interested in that. I, I'm really interested in trying to, you know, I didn't get into documentary film to save the world. I got into documentary film to like better understand it. And yeah. But to, to Angel's point, I think one version of criticism that I did see was, you know, when Meg asks the question, because you, you're not, you're not, like you said, you're not like in the film per se, but you are asking the questions uh, the yeah. detainees are are facing the camera and answering them. And they claim, this is a criticism I read, that just asking the question, so are you a terrorist, is is I don't, I don't say, are you right? a terrorist? The direct quote is, do you think that you oh, are do you a terrorist? Think, yeah. Do you think that you are? T- right. Hmm. Right. And, and and so the I, I recall like reading, I think it was in The Guardian, this, uh, it, it was just yep. a, a bashy piece. And, and it said like, uh, it quoted a film critic or something, or just a critic in general saying, well, you know, she assumes or she's already painting it in, in, in our minds that this person uh, is a terrorist. And I'm like, no, no, it's not. That's not what he's doing. And in effect, after that whole segment, you know, rolls, I, I come away feeling like the line of the boundary of what defines a terrorist is actually kind of blurred. Uh, one person's terrorist is not, you know, another person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. And, and so yeah. that criticism almost has no merit. 
at least from the perspective of the film viewer, unless there are people that that feel otherwise. But I distinctly remember that. Yeah, I think so. The the reason why I asked him this that question, and there's one right next to it too. So the two questions I think that people were calling out is I ask him, do you think you are a terrorist? Like I'm asking what he thinks of himself. And I also yeah. ask him, do you think you're a good person or a bad person? And the reason is before that in the interview, he was talking about how people in America hate him, how everyone thinks he's a bad person and how like he he was worried about his kind of like what the world thought of him. And that's why I asked him, well, what do you think? Do you think you're a terrorist? Do you think you're a good person or a bad person? Because I was really interested because he was very aware how, um, you know, he was perceived by the rest of the world being in, have been, having been in Guantanamo. But I was wondering if he had both maybe internalize that or how he viewed himself. And I think it's interesting because I did have a vet reach out and sent me this email about those questions because he watched the film and then went online and saw some of the criticism. He's like, you know what? You know, I was asked that question many times from reporters. Like, would you ever go back to war? Do you, do you feel bad about what you did? And he's like, these are legitimate questions to ask people who are part of an organization, be it military or, or a terrorist organization that kill people. And so he's like, I got asked those same questions as a, as a military person in the United States. He's like, so that's a legitimate question for you to ask. But I do think to, to the point of the, like, you're an interrogator type thing. One thing I want to say, and I do this with all of, not just this film, but all my films is I think part of the thing where you have to kind of get people to, you know, open up is give them agency. So before we ever started filming, I always told them like, listen, I'm going to ask you some questions. And if some of these questions make you uncomfortable or you don't want to answer them or you feel like you have to lie, all you have to do is say, move on. I was like, this is, this is a conversation. This is not like Guantanamo. And I put that in the film. So you see someone like Abu Ghanim being like, skip that question. So what's really funny is as a firefighter, we get a lot of training when it comes to dealing with traumatized people. Because usually when you go on a call, you're dealing with people at the most traumatic moment in their lives. And part of that training is having to give people more agency. And so with these guys in particular, it was imperative that they knew that they had the power to like stop the interview at any time to, you know, answer a question or not answer a question. And, you know, and you see that in the film and we were being very transparent about that. So like, for example, you see Abu Ghanim leave the project and, you know, cause he had that agency to like, yeah, I'm, I've said all I needed to say. I don't want to talk about other stuff and I'm done now. So I think trying to incorporate that in the film and being transparent about how the film was made, I think people who, you know, were attacking the film interpreted that in a bad faith way, which it wasn't, it wasn't done that way. So, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of agency, I think that's probably the most important criticism that I've seen is this idea. And I think, you know, the, the, I'm pretty sure the Abigail Disney apology, she apologized for executive producing the film. Uh, if, you know, for those of you who don't know, <laughs> um, but she mentioned it in her apology, uh, and other people have mentioned it. It's in this guardian article that, that a lot of people have been sharing ever since fair has been posting yeah. things about your film. I think one of the, yeah, that's one of the most important criticisms is this idea that, these men could not consent to being interviewed. They could not possibly do it under anything except coercion because of their circumstances. Yeah. And I think that uh, from the outside, if you've never been to Saudi Arabia and you've never met me and you weren't there for three years, you can make that assumption. But I literally, the Saudi government was like, no one wants to interview you or have you interviewed them before, like through the email. And then, and I was like, can I just meet with them? And it was, it was a, long process to do that. And I did talk to 150 of them. So these guys weren't forced to do this. And then you see kind of some of their answers or some of their stories change over the, those three years. Like when Muhammad really starts yeah. out the film, he basically says, you know, I was on vacation in Afghanistan. And then after he's in the program for a while, he's like, well, actually I went there to fight. And I think you see that kind of evolution over the film. And I think if someone was forcing someone to say what they wanted them to say, they wouldn't start out a film <laughs> claiming something <laughs> else. Um, and also I think that it's really like I, I was there for three years and a lot of the people criticizing that aspect of it have never stepped foot in the kingdom. 
and have never been to the rehab center. And personally, I would never pretend to know how a film was made unless I was on that film team in country or I had had a really deep dive talk with the filmmaker. And I just feel that there's a lot of people who mm. are just immediately um, assuming bad faith and they haven't talked to me. Yeah. They don't know how the film was made. They say these men are forced to do this, but neglecting the fact that we talked to over a hundred of these men. So it just, I think what's been really interesting for me as a learning curve is I think the perception of the film uh, has become more important, the actual like truth about the film. Mm -hmm. And that perception mm -hmm. has been, and the framing has been very successfully put out there and, and a lot of misinformation about it as yeah. well. On that point, I do think that the criticism holds no water, especially if you consider how many journalists have to go into prisons to interview, I don't know, people who are incarcerated like Jeffrey Dahmer or Richard Marie Ramirez, you know, the serial killers. And, you know, people have produced documentaries. Of, yeah, I mean, one of the most famous of, documentaries of all time is uh, Thin Blue Line, where right. Earl Morris went into a prison and he interviewed a man who was on death row. And because of that documentary and the, the, and the man being able to tell his side of the story, yeah. he was then exonerated and put off yeah. death, death row. And so if we're yeah. going to say, we're not allowed to interview anyone yes. in, in, incarcerated, then that sometimes that's the last chance they have to exactly like challenge the stories that are told about them. And like, so for example, Ali in the film, you know, they each wanted to participate in the film for different reasons. Ali was, was mostly like he was under the shadow of his brother and his brother yeah. was the um, leader of Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And he was painted with that same brush and he wanted to tell his own story and be his own individual and have people know that he wasn't his brother. And so if you're saying that he's not allowed to tell his own story, I think that's like, you're, you're basically doing what was done to them in Guantanamo for 15 years. You're, you're basically silencing them. You're redacting them. They're redacting their side. And one of the reasons why we decided to change the name to Unredact is because this film like lets them tell their own story and, and unredact that side of it. And also unredact the film since the film's been redacted as well, essentially. <laughs> so I like double entendres. So that's why. Yeah, that's good. But so, yeah, so I, I think a lot, a lot of misinformation is going around. People are responding and it's hard to know whether people are being sincere or not, but taking them, taking them in good faith and taking them at their word, maybe, maybe reiterate all the steps you took to ensure that these men gave informed consent and were willful participants in this project. What were all yeah. the steps you took to ensure that? Yeah. Um, so there are things that I did specifically for these guys that I, that, and there are things that I do with all subjects. So I'll talk about what I do with all my films. So anytime I do a documentary, I never meet the subject with a camera first time. I always meet them one-on-one -on -one without the camera. And I basically tell them this. Um, you, you have to explain to them what a documentary is because most people don't understand how it's made. And I didn't until I became a documentary filmmaker. So you have to explain like, this is not a one-off interview. I'm going to be in your life for quite a long time. And we're going to have several conversations. I'm going to film you here and at your house and I'm going to talk to your family and kind of give them the lay of the land about how a documentary is made. And then after that, I explain to them, like, I'm going to ask you a lot of questions and, you know, I want you to feel comfortable answering them. And so because I'm going to ask you a lot of questions for this first time that we're talking, you can ask me anything you want. I mean, anything. You can ask me like, you know, my favorite color to look like my first kiss, like anything is on the table because I want you to feel comfortable with me. And if you don't feel comfortable with me and you don't trust me to tell your story, then I actually do not want you to do this for two reasons. Number one, it will show up on camera and I don't want that. It's not going to look good in the film and it's not going to come across as genuine and sincere and authentic. And number two, how I had a documentary made about me that I wasn't really uh, I didn't really know the people who did it and, and uh, it wasn't a good experience for me. Um, and so uh, I would not wish that on anyone else. And I think because of that experience, I'm quite aware of what it is to have someone else tell your story and giving them the chance and the agency to kind of ask me and grill me all those questions. 
Nader was like, why don't you, why aren't you married? Like, what is wrong with you? Like, those are some of the questions I got at the beginning. He's like, you're how old and you're not married? Hmm, what does your father think about that? And so that was, those are some pretty interesting questions in the beginning. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think that when you're talking about making a documentary, it isn't an interrogation. So these, so for these, so for these, I did all that with these guys, but also you have to like normally for films, you have people sign these really long release forms um, that are written by lawyers and they're really complicated and they're like two or three pages long. And um, for me, uh, knowing that I get really intimidated by when I see legal contracts, especially someone who was in Guantanamo for 15 years and people wanted them to constantly sign things and like confessions and stuff. It was okay. imperative to me that we give them something that was they could grasp and that was really simple. And so it was like a little paragraph in English and then right next to it, a paragraph in Arabic. And it was just like a basic, like, I'm giving you permission to film me and use that in a documentary that's going to go everywhere and that kind of thing. So, yeah. And so it was typically we, for, you, we do a much more thorough thing, but I think you have to kind of meet people where they're at. And for the professors at the rehab center, the ones that were educated in the West and were fluent in English, we gave them the normal, the normal ones. But so it was stuff like that. And then, yeah, like it was taking... It was also like trying to be aware of where we're at and both in editing the film and in the questions we asked, these men had just got back from, you know, Guantanamo. And so originally a lot of the like conversations we had were very benign. You know, it was giving them a chance to get comfortable with me. So we talk about their favorite soccer team and childhood memories and things like that. And then, you know, have... The great thing about documentaries is you have the time and the space and the grace to kind of let those relationships evolve organically over time. And as we show in the film in the beginning, there's like, you know, I'm suspicious of them. They're suspicious of me. They're kind of guarded. And as the film like goes on, they and I both open up to one another and you see this kind of very, you know, close relationship. And I like one of the scenes in the film, Ali says, you know, I've never told anyone else this before, not even my own sister. And so, and he talks about feeling shame for some of the things that he said in Guantanamo to the, the people there and, and how he regrets that. And I think that you only get to that space with someone if you've spent a lot of time with them and they trust you. And yeah, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. You mentioned earlier, you said that one of the things that strikes you about this whole controversy is that people are reacting to the perception of the film and not the film itself. And um, there are a few players in all of this. And, and one of them who I think, which I think is particularly insidious, is actually the role of journalists in pushing out this smear campaign. Um, that yeah. article, actually, um, the hit piece that The Guardian wrote, um, there were a lot of quite blatant lies that <laughs> if you watch the film, would be directly um, challenged and it, yeah. it strikes me. And, and the problem is that because the film is right now in no man's land, no one can mm -hmm. actually watch it to determine for themselves and push back. And so that, that is a lot of power to this small group of activists because they can say anything they want. And, yeah. and, and very little people who actually have the had the privilege. We had the privilege to see the film because of our association yeah. with FAIR and because we're interviewing you. Um, but the very, but the the rest of the world can't see it and can't push back on the narrative. And so we've just handed them all this power and, you know, complicit in all of this is, you know, the Abigail Disney's of the world, the people that loved the film until they didn't. And not because anything changed other than there was just so much smoke surrounding it. And so they conclude that where there's smoke, there's fire. Um, yeah. and, and this is, this is really just a, a, a terrible storm of events. Yeah. Mm. Um, I, I think for me, it's been a learning curve because with the exception of the New York times piece, and then a couple of journalists that have reached out since then have been actual, like, I, I don't want to say proper journalists, but journalists who actually like do their due diligence. Um, I know in the beginning, you know, I was reached out by a lot of outlets that were like trade magazines, like IndieWire. And 
they just wanted a quote. They said, we have these two, three questions. We want answers to these. And based on those two, three questions, I realized that they'd already written a narrative and they just wanted a soundbite to fit that narrative. And for example, The Guardian. So there's a big difference between a staff writer and a freelance writer. So for example, Michael Powell is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who's on the staff of the New York Times. And there is a lot of due diligence that you have to do in order to publish a piece like that, where the person who wrote The Guardian is this kind of freelance, kind of activist, writer, journalist. And what I mean by that is when I originally heard from her, it was about four months after Sundance. So four months after Sundance, she wrote me an email and basically saying, um, I'm doing a story about how your film is offensive to the Muslim community. And I'd like to, you know, like get some like quotes or whatever from you or like, you know, get, get some information from you. And she wanted to know like where the film was going to screen next. And, and it's, uh, it's kind of publication plans. And then I wrote back, I'm like, you know, have you seen the film? And if so, where? And she said she saw it at Sundance, which is strange because she's located in the UK and it was geo-blocked to only play in the United States. And okay, fair enough. Maybe she got around that. But then Sundance was four months ago. Why would you wait four months then to reach out to me? And so then I messaged or or emailed her back. I'm like, well, what did you think of the film? And then I never heard back from her because during that time, uh, the articles came out from Lorraine Ali, who's Muslim, from uh, Zaid, who's Muslim, who came out and supported the film and really, really championed it. And so fast forward to July, she then emailed me again. This is like, I didn't hear from her for months. And then this new email, she said, I'm picking this back up. Now I'm writing a story about how your film puts these men in harm's way and they're, they're in danger. And so what I realized from that interaction is this is, this is not a real journalist. This is someone who's trying to find an angle on this film. And so I, I told them, and she said, I, I, I want these five, six questions answered in writing. And that's so why I wrote her back. And I said, listen, I'm willing to give you an interview. And I talked to you for however long you want about anything. But I want it to be on Zoom because I want to be able to talk to you face to face. And I want your editor to be on that call. Because it was clear to me that she was not what I would call a real journalist. Because a real journalist doesn't go into a conversation with accusations. They go in with curiosity. You know, it's, it's all about inquiry where she was going like on an inquisition. <laughs> it's a big difference. And yeah. so I offer that. And any journalist worth their salt would jump in an interview to yeah. be completely on the record and unlimited time. And they turned it down. And she said, no, you have to answer these six questions in writing by 8 a.m. tomorrow morning, or we're going to print this paragraph about you and, you know, how you declined to talk and all this other stuff. And I, I just thought, wow, this is how The Guardian operates. Like, this was really alarming to me. And so we answered all the questions in writing because it felt like I didn't really have any choice. And then they didn't really include almost any of the stuff that we wrote because it was very, it kind of shut down all the stuff that they were accusing us of. Um, and I think they just wrote like the, the filmmaker disputes this. Um, and so that got published and it was full of like just lies. And um, because I'd had experience in the past earlier on this process with uh, publications printing, you know, things that were factually inaccurate and then reaching out and making them aware of that and saying, hey, just to let you know, like, so for example, Documentary Magazine uh, had an article where we found like so many factual errors, but one of them was really egregious where the direct quote was, the men professed their innocence throughout the entire film. Now, if you watch the first five minutes of the film, you know, that's not true. And so we pointed that out and they didn't change it. Mm. Or like, you either didn't watch the film and pretended that you did, or you watched the film and you're just lying about it. And in my opinion, that doesn't make you a very, that doesn't make you a journalist. And it also doesn't make your um, publication very uh, reliable. So when The Guardian published it, I realized just writing them back would not solve the problem to get a retraction. So we reached out to some lawyers in the UK and said, hey, like, this is what happened. Here are all the factual errors. Here's the proof that why it's like wrong. And they're like, okay, yeah, we deal with the garden all the time. Step one is we're going to write a letter. And that letter uh, is going to start this conversation and, and will eventually, because of obviously it is untrue, get it retracted and, and, and whatnot. And they said, but you know, 
step one is the letter. I said, okay, well, how much does that cost? And just to write a letter was 5,000 pounds. Now, I don't know about you, but I have, (laughs) since I got canceled, I have not really had much of an income at all. So I didn't have the resource to do that. And I realized that if you're very well off, you're able to combat these kind of things. But if you're a normal person, if you're just working class, you kind of had no recourse in these ways. And so all these lies and misinformation has spread because I don't have a war chest to be able to combat the misinformation. And that's been really frustrating because people look at The Guardian as a very reputable publication. And I do think there's probably staff writers that are very reputable. But this particular person definitely wasn't operating from a place of good space or inquiry or curiosity. And I think that is unfortunate because I think in the end, like, you know, (laughs) I don't really have a war chest, but I do have a really big stick and that's called the truth. And I hope the truth eventually comes out. And I think the it's probably not going to be a really good look for for the Guardian when they do. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of eventually coming out, you know, we've been talking this whole time about how, you know, if you see the film, you will see this. And uh, so far, most people will not have had that chance. But I I think that's changing. I hope so. So tell us, tell us what's happening and how people can stay informed about what's going on. Well, um, so because we weren't able to get distribution and it's very, um, so that we had like with, you know, uh, Netflix or whatnot or Hulu, uh, it still want the film to go on the world. So we have to like self-distribute, which means we have to make the trailers for the film and posters for film and put it out in the world. And again, that's all costs a lot of money and I don't come from money. So uh, right now I'm doing a GoFundMe page where we're trying to raise money to pay for the trailer, to pay for posters, to pay for legal, to kind of sort all this stuff out, um, like contracts with theaters and things like that. And, um, you know, just the old firefighter thing, improvise, adapt and overcome. So we're trying to, trying to do it some way to get it out there. Cause I do think for me, and I, I, you know, I, I wish we could talk about the film more than the controversy, but the thing that I really love about the film is how impactful it's been. And I think the thing that's kept me going throughout all this and like kept me trying to fight to get this thing out there is people who have seen it and their response to it has been so strong and powerful and impactful. And it like, if you have, like I went on Morning Joe the other day and here's a guy who was a complete supporter of the war on terror. And then he watched the film and he was like, oh shit, like maybe my viewpoint was wrong. And that's a huge, huge like deal, especially in this day and age when everyone kind of digs in so hard on um, their beliefs um, and kind of doesn't go into films with, and we, we're all very politicized. And, and for me, this film kind of tries to stay away from that. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, when I was in high school, I studied World War II and you learn about all the facts and the battles and the numbers and 6 million people dying. And my little human brain can't, could not wrap my head around that. Like I can't understand 6 million people being killed. But then I read the book, Anne Frank, and just that human story, just that individual, just one person story within that environment helped me kind of contextualize everything else. And for me, I'm hoping that this film can do the same thing for kind of the last 20 years of the war on terror is put like a human story on the cost of war and the cost of conflict and what it means like on the ground in people's lives. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And so is it jihadrehab.com? Is that where people can sign up for info and Yeah. So if you go to, if you want to donate to the GoFundMe, you can go to jihadrehab.com and hit donate and it will take you to the GoFundMe page because I forgot that it's a long, more, a longer URL on the, on the GoFundMe. (laughs) I guess you can also... Um, go to GoFundMe and search for The Unredacted. That will probably help you find it too. And so, yeah, so we're trying to, like, I think criticism is part of the process, right? That's not what I I have a problem with. I think that when you write a book or when you make a movie and you put it out in the public space, criticism is part of that process. And actually, like, sometimes it really makes you a better either writer or filmmaker. Um, But there's a difference between criticism and, like, a campaign to actually, like, take out a film where you're hiring lawyers and, you know, threatening 
publications for their positive reviews with legal action and, and, you know, taking screenshots of credits and calling people up and intimidating them to try to take their name off the film. I mean, there's a difference between saying in a tweet, like, I watched this film and here are the problems I have with it versus like my composer got like, I think four or five calls from people encouraging him to take his name off the film. And then when he asked every single one of them what the problem was, he found out that none of those people had actually seen the film. And so it's kind of this whole thing like took on a life of its own. And I think it's, like I said before, I wish, like we wouldn't be having this discussion, I don't think, if a Netflix had picked it up and people just go watch it for themselves, like I said before. Okay. And, and you know, like once you watch the film, 99% of the things that we're being accused of are completely discredited. And I think, you know, I don't, I don't like fault the people attacking the film because throughout all of history, people will attack something that's public and popular and whatnot. And you're going to have people who like stuff and people who don't. But I think when you have institutions like Sundance and, and South by Southwest who capitulate to this kind of stuff and then kind of either apologize for the work or then choose not to show it after they invited the film. I think that to me is where things have shifted because, you know, I think when Salman Rushdie got attacked this year, I kind of did a deep dive into that because I knew a little bit of it, but I didn't really know the details. And then reading about the translators who had been killed mm -hmm. just by translating his book. Yep. And then bookstores who, fearing for their own safety, could have pulled the book but they didn't. They chose to screen it like anyway. And that was a principal thing. And now we're in a space where a prestigious film festival like Sundance, who has, is supposed to be a space for challenging films and for diverse thoughts and ideas and, and perspectives, is apologizing not once, but twice because of a campaign on Twitter and a letter writing campaign. And I just feel that things have shifted in a way to where we used to have bookstores and publishers who would stick by their writers and stick by the work. And now that seems to not be the case. And that's really worrying for me. And I think that, I don't know, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure like where that transition happened. And I honestly wasn't aware of it because I was in my bubble for so long working on this film. But um, I'm hoping that this is, that we don't go for, like, it's very worrying to me that we have people who haven't seen a film uh, willing to pull it or haven't even like talked to the filmmaker and then accuse them of all this stuff and who haven't seen the film. It's, it's, um, it's worrying. So here's the irony, right? Because Sundance actually in its letter about its comments of, you know, after the, after pulling it, after pulling your invite said that they were going to send their, staff members all for some kind of Islamopho Islamophobia training, anti-Islamophobia training. And the reason why I think it's ironic is because if you do actually care about Islamophobia, the film you made, which is deeply humanistic, is, is and, and your actions, right? Somebody who sees 9-11 happen and decides to go to the region to understand those people those people. That is the cure for Islamophobia. It is precisely the cure. And the fact that you are being accused of it and not getting a chance to actually clear the air because the film is stuck now in this no man's land. Yeah. Is and unfortunately, the, I think is Sundance's so apology. Yeah, I think I think unfortunately the thing that was so damning about Sundance's apology is that they are a respected institution. Yeah. And um, for them apologizing not once but twice, it kind of reinforced the lies being told about the film. And that was very damaging, yeah. um, as well as Abigail Disney's apology. But I want to make something pretty clear here, because I know most people won't know this, but I, I differentiate between Sundance Film Festival and Sundance Insti the Institute. I know that a lot of the people who programmed this film got a lot of hate. And they definitely, I don't think, wanted the film, the Institute to apologize because it's basically like saying, we, you didn't do your job. You don't know what you're doing. And I know that like a lot of those people who are on the programming team 
um, had a lot of people reach out and and accuse them of being racist and Islamophobic. And I don't know if you know this, but you don't get paid a lot of money to be a program. It's you do it out of love of the of the craft of filmmaking and documentary. And the fact that these people were putting puts the ringer and then the, their institution then apologized. I mean, I couldn't like, that must've been a horrible experience for them to kind of like have their institution not back them up either. So I don't want to like paint Sundance with a complete brush because there are definitely people in there who really stood by the film. But unfortunately the leadership at the time decided that, um, that they were going to apologize again, not once, but twice for the film. And what was really really hard to, to see that because I have respected and looked up to Sundance for years and, and, um, you know, it's every independent filmmaker's dream to have their, their film premiere there. Meg, we always ask our guests the same last question. Um, and it is, you know, our, our goal here at FAIR is to provide pro-human alternatives to the issues of the day, like the very ones we're talking about right now. Um, what does pro-human mean to you and how can everyday people model that behavior? Oh, that's a good question. Someone once watched the film and told me that the film was like a, um, if empathy was like a, uh, an all, like a contact ultimate sport, right? Like if it was a, yeah, I think that, um, for me, what I try to do is like, for example, I think it's always imperative to ask why before you kind of a, like judge someone. So for example, initially when the film was announced and it was being attacked without anyone seeing it, my initial response was not to was not anger or and it was not like I'm going to attack them back. It was I actually understood it initially because when someone who's not seen a film or met the person has that much rage against it, then there's something else going on there. And what do I mean by that was I went on a call once as a, as a firefighter and this kid had uh, really severely hurt his hand during the 4th of July. And I, we showed up on scene and the mom was crying, but the father was irately angry. And that anger was directed at us. Like we showed up on scene and he's like, where the fuck have you been? Like, what's taking you so long? You're so incompetent. And there was like so much rage that this person felt. And it was directed that people were trying to help his kid. And then we got the kid bandaged up and put him in the ambulance. And then right after they were out of earshot, one of the other firefighters said like, that guy's lucky I didn't deck him. And then our captain, who had a lot more experience than us, turned around and had this, uh, this is about to be a teachable moment look on his face. He said, listen, trauma is very unpredictable. And you're, you're meeting these people at the most traumatic moment of their lives. And different people deal with trauma differently. Some people cry, some people laugh, and some people get angry. And even though this man was angry at you, you have to realize that it wasn't about you, that this situation was really stressful and this is how he was processing this trauma. And so initially, when the attack started before anyone had seen the film, it felt like that. It's like there was so much rage against a film that I just thought, okay, this is a community for the last 20 years since 9-11 has had these experiences in the United States that have made them feel persecuted, that have made them feel otherized. And they see a film that's going to be at this prestigious film festival at Sundance. And they probably think, okay, this is another example of how our people are treated and how our people are portrayed. And so in the beginning, I thought this was just some kind of um, misunderstanding. And that when people saw the film, like they would realize that, yeah, this if this was like every other terrorist film ever made where it's fear mongering and reinforces stereotypes, then yeah, I would definitely understand that. But also if it was Sundance, probably wouldn't have programmed it. Um, so I think when, and when someone is behaving in a way that might not make sense, I think the pro human in me, uh, instead of kind of hitting back, I think it's really good to try and put yourself in some other one, somebody else's shoes and just ask yourself why, because there has to be a reason behind that. And I think, um, you know, my, I consider her my sister and we, she calls me her, 
her sister and her family basically adopted me when I was in Yemen, but she uh, lived in Iraq and then we went to war in Iraq and that country went to big shits. And then she moved to Yemen with her family. And then that's where I met her like 20 years ago. And um, they kind of became my clan and my, adopted me over there and looked after me. And then when Yemen kind of imploded, then she moved to the States and she lives here. And I remember when she moved here, she told me about her first, I mean, she'd been born in the States, but she grew up in Iraq, but her first time coming back to the States, she went through immigration and customs and she took three steps out of the airport and she wears a hijab and someone spit in her face and told her to go back to where she came from. Now, this was her introduction to this country. And I think that that over a period of time of people constantly being suspicious of you, constantly looking down on you, um, it, it's, it takes its toll and it is a, a kind of trauma. And so whenever you're dealing with people who maybe are coming at you in a way that you think is unjustified, before you kind of jump on and just think everyone's acting in bad faith, just try to put yourself in their shoes and realize that usually when someone's lashing out like that, it comes from a place of like pain and it comes from a place of trauma. And like my captain said, you know, trauma is very unpredictable. What people have to understand is there's a difference between the ethics of an activist and ethics of a journalist. Like if an activist, so for example, for Me Too, everyone was saying, you know, believe all women. And that's an activist stance because we want to mm-hmm. push this agenda. But as a journalist, if you find a story where someone is actually being um, untruthful, your job is to write that story, even though it's an inconvenient truth for the movement. And I think that if your movement is to like paint all the men in Guantanamo as never having done anything at all wrong, then there were a lot of people in Guantanamo who that is true for, but that's not a hundred percent for everyone there. Then this story kind of hurts that cause. But again, like I'm not an activist, I'm a documentary filmmaker and my ethics are, if it's true, even if it's inconvenient, I think it needs to be talked about. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It's a very okay. beautiful, very gracious answer. <laughs> not always gracious. So <laughs> I haven't had coffee yet. So, so <laughs> I would have been a lot more gracious with some coffee. <laughs> Meg's maker, thank you so much for your time. And thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Fair Perspectives. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating and review. You can also access exclusive podcast content, such as Q&As and bonus episodes, by visiting us and signing up at fairperspectives.org. For weekly fair news and opinion pieces by members of the fair community, visit our Substack at fairforall.substack.com and tune into Fair News Weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to join or support the pro-human movement, visit us at fairforall.org slash join us. Thanks again and see you next time.